We're going to continue in our exposition of the book of Jonah, and tonight we're in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3, so you can turn there in uh, verses 6 to 10, but I'm going to read the whole chapter of uh, Jonah chapter 3, just for context. Jonah chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published Through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not only this account and the things that we can learn from it, but of the event itself and the circumstances surrounding this event, this great revival in history, perhaps the greatest revival in history. And to see a record of your work in these people, sinners as they were, and and great and evil sinners, yet your great mercy worked in their lives to turn them to you, our merciful God. Please be with us this evening as we look at this passage and learn from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, throughout history, there have been several great revivals, um, such as the Great Awakening in the 1730s in America, in the colonies, and then the Second Great Awakening towards the end of that century. Um, We think of the the Great Awakening, um, and particularly uh, the work being done through Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the Wesleys and and, um, the Puritans of that age. And and it was really a a foundation for our country, and and we're blessed because of it, because of um, the great movement of the Spirit in that time and place that... um, Many of our, our laws, our constitution, our culture, um, founded upon uh, the biblical principles and the events of that time. Um, 
but uh, many of the revivals in history um, and those that were recorded as revival have not always been the case. They, they, they haven't um, been true revivals, and, and and we could we could see this if if we look in more recent history in the in um, perhaps the the mid to late 1800s and the early 1900s in our country and and the tent revivals and and uh, things uh, events which could be better defined as revivalism uh, uh, events uh, in which uh, there was a lot of fervor a lot of emotionalism a lot of um, propaganda, um, and certainly there's good things happening in those meetings, but they're short-lived, a lot of emotionalism. But true revival um, is always preceded by or accompanied with a sincere return to and a deep interest in God's Word. It's it's characterized by biblical preaching and evangelism, by true and lasting life change in terms of biblical morality and service to God and others. And, and therefore, true revival can sometimes be hard to account for in, in the moment. And it, it takes time and discernment to validate whether or not this has been a true revival, a true work of the Holy Spirit. Um, however, in this account, in this passage concerning Nineveh and their profound repentance, we can be sure that it, it was a true revival and quite possibly the greatest revival in history because of what Jesus said about it. Not, not only do we have this passage and, and the Word of God showing their uh, repentance, we don't necessarily see what would come after in the lives that they um, lived after Jonah would leave. But we do know that Jesus himself um, commented on this. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41, he, he was uh, talking to the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and the scribes and the, the, the Jewish leaders of his day, those who were curious about uh, what he was preaching and what he was doing and who he was. And he says to them, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And that passage not only validates this revival, this great repentance, but it, it validates the whole book of Jonah. The, the story of the fish, um, what many people in, in Christianity and, and who know the story would, would see as uh, mythology or as children's stories about a whale. Jesus validates this whole book. But more than the whale, it, he, he validates the repentance, the revival, that this actually happened, that this great city, this city of of Israel's enemies repented. This wicked city, known for their evil, known for their ruthlessness and, and how they defeated their enemies, how they conquered their enemies. They repented. They truly repented. They truly re turned to God. 
And in this account of the Ninevites' response to the preaching of, no, of, of Jonah, we see three aspects of their profound repentance. Three aspects of their profound repentance here in verses 6 to 10. First and foremost, this, this is a far-reaching repentance. Verse 6, it says that the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. It says the word reached the king, king of Nineveh. It reached him. But, but that, that, uh, that raises a question, from where did it proceed? And, and just in the verse previously, we, we see that it, it came from Jonah. We know it came from Jonah, but it proceeded through Jonah to the people of Nineveh, because Jonah, as, as it says, that Nineveh was a three days journey, but as he went into the city, going a day's journey, he, he only went a day's journey, and, and it says in verse 5 that the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't believe Jonah, per se. They, it says they believed God. They did believe Jonah, but they recognized that Jonah was just the messenger. Jonah was just the, the herald, the deliverer of this divine message. That this message came with authority. This message came from God himself. And they believed God. But even more so than uh, this message proceeding from God and from Jonah, this, this message had a greater context. This, this was a far-reaching repentance, but it was a repentance with a great context. This was a repentance that was initiated by the preaching of a repentant prophet. And, and it's interesting because oftentimes God uses the least suspected person or, or the, the least likely person that you would think to do a certain task, to show his power. Because as he told the Apostle Paul, his power is perfected in weakness. So oftentimes he uses weak vessels. So oftentimes he uses the least likely person. And he used a disobedient, uh, reluctant prophet to bring about the greatest revival in history. And so this... Great repentance started by a repentant prophet. And this repentant prophet came from an unrepentant nation and people. As we saw in earlier messages, that the book of Jonah is, in a sense, uh, points to um, Israel as a nation. It just the way Jonah was, was reluctant and disobedient to carry out the task that God had given him, that was. Uh, a characterization of Israel at that time. That Israel itself was reluctant and disobedient to carry out its task and purpose to be a witness nation to the nations around it. And so we have this, this great repentance initiated by the preaching of a repentant prophet from an unrepentant nation and people. And, and even... The Apostle Paul would comment on this, not particularly Jonah and Nineveh, but just this aspect 
of Israel being an unrepentant nation and people, a, a nation and people that did not carry out their purpose and their task. In Romans chapter 10 and verses 19 to 21, Paul says this. He says concerning the, the furtherance of the gospel, the spread of the gospel and the gospel going out to Gentiles, he says this. He says, but I ask, did Israel not understand First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And just as in Paul's day, a a, a big part of the gospel spreading outward from Israel to Gentile nations as the, the Israelites would uh, reject their own Messiah and the gospel would go forth. That, that was partly to make Israel jealous, but it was all, also part of God's plan all along that his gospel would go out, that he would gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is partly this is partly what Israel was to do, is partly what Jonah was to do, to spread the fame of God, to gather in people from all over. And here in Romans chapter ten, uh, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy thirty-two that this was this was prophesied through Moses, as he says. Moses says this. Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And this is what Deuteronomy 32 verse 21 says. They have made me jealous with what is no God. Talking of the Israelites, God speaking about them. He says, they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And this prophecy in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. This is being fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jonah. And then it's fulfilled later in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. As they take the gospel out to people, to Gentile nations, Jonah to to not just Gentile nations, not just non-Israelites, but Israel's nemesis, Israel's enemy at that time. Because Israel itself was disobedient and worshiping idols. And and, and not just in their idolatry, but in their refusal to be the people that God had called them to be. So this this repentance of the Ninevites, it comes with a great context. it's, It's initiated by the preaching of a repentant prophet that was before that disobedient and reluctant. a a repentant prophet from an unrepentant nation and people who is sent by a merciful God to a merciless people. Also in in the book of Romans, uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 9 and verses 13 to 16, he says this, he says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this was, in a sense, uh, Jonah's excuse. As we see that even after their repentance, he was still upset. And he says, he says is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. There's a sense that he knew God would be merciful to Nineveh. As soon as he, he called Jonah, as soon as he told Jonah to go, it, it was almost as if Jonah knew, I know what he's going to do. He's going to save these people. I don't want to go to these people. God's going to... Have mercy on him. I, I want him to crush them. But that's not the point. The, the, the point is that God is a merciful God. And he's merciful to whomever he desires to show mercy to. And the Israelites themselves, they had, even though they were God's chosen people and still are God's chosen people, they have no right to boast in that. Because God says in the law that I love you because I love you. Because I've chosen to place my love upon you. It's not because of anything they have done. And so we see that there's this greater context concerning this, this repentance, this far-reaching repentance that came through Jonah. And not only did, not only did it was it initiated by a preaching of a repentant prophet from an unrepentant nation and people who was sent by a merciful God to a merciless people, but it came at a providential time of peril. There's a providential time of peril when, when Jonah comes to the Ninevites, when he comes to Nineveh, when he comes to Assyria. One commentator writes this. He says that Nineveh's repentance may have been aided by the two plagues in 765 and 759 B.C., and then a solar eclipse in 763 B.C. Um, all of these events in ancient history, and, and even partly today in some countries, all these events, plagues, famines, uh, solar eclipse, are seen as omens of divine judgment. And, he, and this commentator says he, these events were preparing the Ninevites for Jonah's judgment message. Now, now we don't know exactly it, if that's part of the reason why, but certainly it helped, certainly it aided in their repentance, but, but more often than not, more, more likely and certainly... It was the work of God through Jonah. And God using these events to prepare them. Even as, as Paul says concerning just the, the nature of repentance in Romans 2, he, he tells his hearers, he says this, he writes, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He, he's in a sense, speaking to 
the Jews in this passage, saying that God's kindness, his patience, the, the fact that he is giving you time is meant to lead you to repentance. And not just that, but his word, his messengers, his providence. And, and if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard testimonies. And most testimonies come from a point of crisis, a point of trial, a point of clear providence. And here's a question for all of us is, do you recognize the providential kindnesses of God in your life in those circumstances which have led to times of repentance? That, that God was kind to send that sickness. He was kind to send you into that trial, that circumstance, that, that accident, that relationship uh, struggle. Maybe it was a family struggle. Or may, maybe it was um, something at or a workplace, or maybe it was something more severe like war or famine or poverty. But if you hear enough testimonies, you will see that providence in those trials and those circumstances in which God confronts us in our own sin. And it's not just those testimonies of salvation, but those testimonies of backsliding, of continuing in a sin that, Sometimes we're blinded to that there's there's providence in this in the perils of life that lead us to repentance. Even in in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which um, I spoke of earlier this morning, as he talks about the Lord's Supper and he goes on, he, he's he's confronting their errors concerning how they celebrate the Lord's Supper, and he says in First Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 28 to 30, he says, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he says this, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Because of the way they have approached the Lord's table and the Lord's supper, God has struck them with weakness and illness and, and even death. And, and sometimes we need to stop and ask ourselves, um, am I going through this trial? Am I facing this sickness because of some sin in my life? And certainly we live in a sin cursed world and those things happen to us whether we're in sin or not. But we need to take advantage of those opportunities to search our own hearts and to ask ourselves it's because of some sin that I am not aware of. And certainly with, with the plagues and famines, because all throughout the Bible, plagues and famines are uh, an indicator of God's judgment. Yeah, I, I remember when uh, COVID first hit, that was what many in the in the church was that that was a discussion you know is there something within us that is there something within our lives that we need to repent of and and the church as a whole as churches were being shut down because of this the church as a whole needed to ask itself the local body 
Is there something we're doing wrong? And, and certainly we can look back and we can see that the faithful churches grew and the unfaithful churches shut down. And so certainly plagues, famines, natural disasters can be a work of providence to bring about repentance. So this, this repentance of the Ninevites, it was a far-reaching repentance with a great context. It was a repentance with a great context. Uh, and it was also a grassroots repentance. It began with the people. It, it began with the common folk as, as certainly uh, uh, Jonah would come into the city and, and, and perhaps enter in through the farmlands and the rural areas as any city is surrounded by small towns and villages and farmlands. He would interact with those people first before he got more into the metropolitan area of Nineveh. And so he would, he would speak his message of judgment to the common folk first. And then it spread. It spread from them. It, it was a grassroots repentance. It began with the people and then it spread upward through the higher classes of society. Through into the marketplaces. As Verse 6 says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. Jonah didn't reach the king. Jonah didn't speak to the king. Jonah's words went past him, beyond him, to people who would repent and then tell others, and then they would repent. The people believed God, not merely Jonah, but they believed Jonah's words as if those words were coming directly from God and those words spread through the people all the way up to the king. So this was a far-reaching repentance with a great context. It was a grassroots repentance and it was a royal repentance. It was a royal repentance. The word reached the king and not just the king, but later we see his decree came from the, the, the king and his nobles that his whole court and, and everybody, the whole city of Nineveh, so all his government officials, they repented as well. In one of the study Bibles I was reading, it, says, it has a note that says this. It says, the king's response was as immediate and spontaneous as that of his subjects. Royal authority gave way to penitent humility. He exchanged his robes for sackcloth, his throne for a bed of ashes. All, all his accoutrements, all his, his regalia, his robes signified his authority and his position and his pomp and circumstance. Everything about him he took off. And he traded that for the, lowly, the lowliest of dress, the sackcloth, and lowered himself to the point of all his other subjects, all his other people. He, it was, there was no more distinctions. He recognized that he was just as sinful as the most sinful person in his city in his kingdom on calvin in his commentary he writes this he says it is worthy of being noticed that the king of so splendid a city nay at that time the greatest monarch should have rendered himself 
so submissive to the exhortation of Jonah. For we see how proud kings are, as they think themselves exempt from the common lot of men. So they carry themselves above all laws. Hence it comes that they will have all things to be lawful for them, and while they give loose reins to their lusts, they cannot bear to be admonished, even by their equals. But Jonah was a stranger and of a humble condition, that he therefore so touched the heart of the king must be ascribed to the hidden power of God, which he puts forth through his word whenever he pleases. And basically what he's saying is kings, nobles, rulers, um, authority figures are so proud, so lofty in their own opinions of themselves that they create their own laws. They, and not only create their own laws, but they live according to the own laws of their heart, which are often in contradiction to their own written laws. That they just do whatever they please. And so the, the simple fact that the king himself repented And he repented not from hearing the verbal cry of Jonah, but from that repentance, in essence, having a domino effect and reaching all the way upwards to his court, his administration. And as Calvin writes, it must be ascribed to the hidden power of God. It was a true repentance. Second, this was an extensive repentance. It was an extensive repentance, verses 7 and 8. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This was an extensive repentance in in three ways. This was first and foremost extensive because a government-mandated repentance. It was a repentance that started with the repentant prophet reached all the way from the common folk all the way up to the king. But then it it went back downwards. It went up from the lowliest person to the highest person, and then from the highest person down and throughout the whole city and the towns all around as a government-mandated repentance. And certainly in our recent history, we can think of government mandates. But have we ever heard of a government-mandated repentance? That you will repent. This is uh, uh, an official law. And, and, and just to think about this, this was, this was decreed. This was a decreed repentance. The, the, the king had to actually think about the wording of the official decree. At, le- at least for a moment, he had to think about how he would uh, decree this, how he would write it out, how he would word it, and probably even consult with his advisors. Note this, it says in, In verse 7, he issued a proclamation and then published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. And in those days, a a, a king, almost many of his decrees, he would 
he would certainly, he would just speak it verbally. This is the decree of the king, and he would speak it. And maybe he would think for a while, maybe he would have advisors about the actual wording, but someone, some scribe or several scribes would be writing that down. They would be writing that down, they would codify it into a law, and then they would issue it out as a proclamation. They would publish it and send out heralds to announce it, as, as we can read in, in the book of Esther and those decrees, or the book of Daniel and the king's decrees and how they were issued and sent out amongst the kingdom. This is what was happening, that the, the king was cut to the heart and he was repentant, but he went further. His repentance bore fruits in the fact that he made a decree. That it wasn't just him, but everyone. He made a decree that everyone needed to repent. And certainly he thought about how he would word that because it says that this was from the king and his nobles. It was decreed, it was recorded. And then it was delivered. In those times, and, and, and even up until recent times, um, kings would deliver their decrees through heralds. Uh, in medieval times, and in, in ancient times, a, a herald uh, was an ambassador of the king. They, they were to speak on behalf of the king, on behalf of the government, on behalf of the rulers, to issue this proclamation. Whatever the news is, and, and, and it wasn't their own authority, but they would have to go out and take this message out into the streets, into the markets, into the alleyways, to every house to proclaim this message. This is, this is in a sense, where we get the term gospel, good news, from that, that concept of a herald going out and proclaiming good news. But in this sense, it wasn't good news at all. This was bad news because this wasn't a message that came with hope. This was a message that came with, with, with dire consequences, with judgment, with destruction. This was a message of desperation. It was a government-mandated repentance that was delivered to all the people. From the king and his nobles to the, the scribes to the heralds, all the way down. This, this repentance was, was so extensive that it started from the bottom, worked its way up, and then it went back down. It was a, a government-mandated repentance. It was a repentance without distinctions. There was no distinctions whatsoever, or no provisions for, or, or handicaps or anything. Every class, every career, every kind of people, even the beasts themselves, everyone must repent. It was a repentance without distinction. The kings and nobles were to repent. The rich and poor were to repent. Man and beast were to repent. Puritan George Swinock, in his works, he, he writes this commenting on this passage. He says, we are, we are set to watch not only for poor men's souls, but also for the souls of rulers, yea, rather for them than for others, because by their example they do much hurt or good. 
Many think it no sin to do what they see great ones do. As like priest, like people. So usually like magistrate, like people. If they be good, the people will be better. David's bounty in building the temple encouraged the people to follow him. If the king of Nineveh humble himself, so will the people. Rulers are like looking glasses by which most men dress themselves. He's, he's commenting on the example of leaders, of government officials, of kings, of their influence. And the king used his influence to issue this decree, this government-mandated repentance, and that this would be a repentance without distinctions because he himself and his nobles and his court repented. Everybody repented, was called to repent. The beasts themselves he wrote, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And it's one thing for a person to fast themselves, to repent themselves. And throughout the Bible, we have instances, we have examples of people individuals taking it upon themselves to fast and pray. Call others around you to fast and pray. That's another thing. And then it's a whole other thing to have your livestock and your beasts and your animals fast and go without water. Because what's going to happen? They're going to groan and moan and kick and fight. And, and so this, this sound of mourning from the people of Nineveh, this sound of praying, out, of praying and calling out to God mightily would also be accompanied by the beasts, by the animals, by the herds and flocks who were allowed no food and no water and were covered themselves in sackcloth. This was a sight to behold, that this was a repentance without distinctions. And, and on one hand, it, it, it's somewhat comical to think of, of the beasts, of the, uh, of the cows and the donkeys and the goats and the chickens and all the animals who um, have sackcloth on them. But to understand that there was... There was no limitations. There was no distinctions. This was a repentance without distinctions. This was a, a repentance without limitations. There was no time frame given. There was no provisions or handicaps, so to speak, given. As if, well, if you're sick or if you're elderly or if you're lame or, you know, if you have a young child. It doesn't say anything about this. It just says everybody. From the lowest to the highest, from the rich to the poor, from human to animal, everybody is to repent. This was an extensive repentance. It was first a far-reaching repentance with a great context. Second, it was an extensive repentance. And third, and most importantly, this was a sincere and genuine repentance. Verses 9 to 10. The king says, after his decree, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his 
fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then it gives an account of what God did. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So not only was it sincere on their part, on the king's part, in his decree, in what he says, that who knows, God may turn and relent, but God saw their sincerity. We, we know that they were sincere because of what God said about them. That, that their sincere and genuine repentance was evidenced in that this repentance came from convicted hearts. It came from hearts of conviction. That it says, the king said, let them call out mightily to God, to, to cry, to plead, to um, verbally call out. And, and that's what they did. In, in his book um, entitled Jonah, His Life, Character, and Mission, Scottish, the Scottish minister and theologian Patrick Fairburn, he, he writes this. He writes this concerning um, this repentance. He says, In these words, considered as a description of sincere and genuine repentance, we have to note first the awakened and heartfelt concern which pervaded the people. All classes shared in it. And those now took the lead in expressing their convictions of guilt and danger, whose situation invested them with the greatest responsibility. The king and nobles of Nineveh were not ashamed to own themselves believers in the word of God and afraid of suffering the inflictions of his displeasure. But convinced themselves of the greatness of the emergency, they endeavored to arouse others to the same, not by any external compulsion, but by openly accrediting on their authority the truthfulness of the prophet's testimony and calling upon the people to meet the evil that threatened them in a becoming spirit. What he's saying, not only did they all repent and cry out and was it sincere and heartfelt from the heart crying out mightily to God but even in the king and the nobles even in their declaration even in their their mandate to repent that began with their own repentance they they, they weren't just just worried about uh, their city and their society and their kingdom and, and just calling on all the people, you know what, you guys, you really need to repent and, and, and you fast and you put on sackcloth, but I'm going to go back to my old you know, way of life and, and I'm just going to continue with the status quo here in the king's court and keep doing whatever I do and I'm just going to issue this decree. No. Because this, this decree began with the king's repentance himself. That he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in the ashes, and he issued the proclamation. This was sincere and genuine. It came from convicted hearts. But it was also, it was also sincere in the fact that it came in sincere hope of God's mercy. That there was a sincere hope that God would be merciful to them. He says in verse 9, Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He was holding out for this hope 
and, and there is an indicator that this message came with a hope of mercy, with a hope of relenting, with a, a hope of avoiding this disaster, this destruction. Because as Jonah came into the city, he called out and he said, yet 40 days. 40 days it is, implies a provision of patience and forbearance, a, a, a provision of time to turn, time to, to contemplate their own evil ways, time to consider, time to consider the destruction that w- they deserve, time to repent. That, that God all, always gives that, that time. God is, is patient with us, not willing that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith. And with every issue, every um, call to repentance, there is that time frame, that time that, that God gives us to actually contemplate and to examine ourselves and to turn. That's part of His grace. That's part of His mercy. So this was a sincere and genuine repentance from convicted hearts in sincere hope of God's mercy and in genuine fear of God's just wrath. That, as the king says, who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He knew that God was not only angry with them, but fiercely angry with them, full of wrath. And and he knew that they deserved this. They deserved this just wrath. That 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 Jonah wasn't just he wasn't just an angry Israelite. That this was a true and honest message, authoritative message from God Himself, from the Creator Himself to repent or else they would be destroyed. There was genuine fear. They knew that Jonah was speaking the truth. This wasn't a, a, a vain threat. This wasn't an empty threat, an empty promise. No, this was a sincere call to repent or else you will be destroyed. So there was genuine fear of God's just wrath and there was also recognition of deserved destruction. This was a sincere and genuine repentance and recognition of the deserved destruction that they knew that they deserved this. Because in his proclamation, in his mandate, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He's in essence saying, saying, I know you all are evil. I'm evil. I know you're violent. Like, I'm the king of this city. I know what goes on here. And in fact, probably he, in a sense, owns that responsibility that I'm leading this evil people. 
I'm giving credence to their evil ways. And so, because I'm leading this evil people, because I know the culture, because I know their evil ways, I'm telling them, turn. Turn from what we know, what I know to be true about you. That you are an evil people with evil ways, full of violence in your hands. And because of this, we deserve destruction. We deserve God's fierce anger. We deserve to perish. J.C. Ryle wrote a book called Repentance. And in that book, he writes this concerning the act of repentance. He says this, he says, Repentance is one of the foundation stones of Christianity. Sixty times at least we find repentance spoken of in the New Testament. What was the first doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ preached? We are told that he said, repent and believe the gospel in Mark 1.15. What did the apostles proclaim when the Lord sent them forth the first time? They preached that the people should repent, Mark 6.12. What was the charge which Jesus gave his disciples when he left the world? That repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. What was the concluding appeal of the first sermons which Peter preached? Repent and be baptized. Repent you and be converted. What was the summary of doctrine which Paul gave to the Ephesian elders when he parted from them? He told them that he had taught them publicly from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What was the description which Paul gave of his own ministry when he made his defense before Festus and Agrippa? He told them that he had taught all people that they should repent and do works fit for repentance. What was the account given by the believers at Jerusalem at the conversion of the Gentiles? When they heard of it, they said, Then has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life? All the work of God throughout history, and especially in the New Testament and throughout the Gospel, begins with repentance. And we see that here in this revival. What accompanies, what is the key indicator of a revival? It's repentance. That marks revivals. And certainly, the greatest revival in recorded history is marked by repentance. Through and through. A far-reaching repentance, an extensive repentance, and a sincere and genuine repentance. But here's the thing in this, in this passage, towards the end, we, we have an issue. We have an issue that um, many have written about. Uh, it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. And, and here's, here's the, the issue. Does, does God relent? Does God, in a sense, repent? Does God change his ways? Numbers 23, verse 19 says this. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. 
Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God does all that he says he will do. He does not change his mind. God is immutable. He, he does not change. He does not lie. And, and even concerning uh, uh, the indications or, or the characteristics of a false prophet or a true prophet, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses writes this. Deuteronomy 18 and verses 20 to 22, he says this, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has, has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. That's the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. Everything that a true prophet speaks comes true, and, and a false prophet, his words do not come true. So was Jonah a prophet here? He said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that was true. That was a true call of judgment, a true call to repent. But God does not change. He does not relent. That was a true warning. Even Jesus said this and to his disciples and to the people around him in Luke chapter 13. He said, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God does not change. And the warning sticks that unless you repent, you will perish. But yet we know the answer to this because Jonah says it himself. After they repented, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah, in a sense, knew that they would repent. He knew that God was merciful. He knew that God would send him there. And yet the warning was still... It was still a serious warning. It was not an empty threat. It was not an empty threat at all. Had they not repented? Yes, God would have destroyed them. But God knew before the foundation of the world all who are his. He knows who would repent. And he sends people to call, to, to call out to others to repent and believe in the gospel. To call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to seek him while he may be found. To call upon him while he is near, to let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and turn to the Lord. 
and he will abundantly pardon. That that call is true. It's not for us to determine who will repent and who will not. God knows. He knows exactly who will repent and who will not. But the warning still has a threat. There is still that threat of judgment. And is that threat of judgment, that warning, that is in effect the, the catalyst which, which provokes us to repent, to understand that we deserve that judgment. We deserve destruction. We deserve hell. And because that, because we realize that, we can be sure that God is doing a work of repentance in our hearts. J.C. Ryle once again says this in his book, Repentance. He says this, true repentance begins with knowledge of sin. He has several marks concerning what true repentance is. That's the first mark. That true repentance begins with knowledge of sin. And you only know that knowledge of sin if, you, if God is doing a work in your heart and you understand the holiness and the justice of, of God and His high standard and you see your sin in light of His holiness and His His righteousness and and his right to judge you and true repentance begins with a knowledge of sin and we see this in this passage He, he goes on he says second true repentance goes on to work sorrow for sin we see this in the ninevites third true repentance proceeds further to produce confession of sin which is what the ninevites did they cried out mightily to god Ryle writes, fourth, true repentance, furthermore, shows itself in a thorough breaking off from sin. As the king said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And we know they did that because God relented. Ryle continues, he says, the life of a penitent man is altered. The course of his daily conduct is entirely changed. A new king reigns within his heart. He puts off the old man. What God commands, he now desires to practice. And what God forbids, he now desires to avoid. He strives in all ways to keep clear of sin, to fight with sin, to war with sin, to get the victory over sin. He ceases to do evil. He learns to do well. He breaks off sharply from bad ways and bad companions. He labors, however feebly, to live a new life. When a man does this, you have the fourth step in true repentance. True repentance, in the last place, shows itself by producing in the heart a settled habit of deep hatred of all sin. As one preacher has said, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're a believer? How do you know that you truly Jesus. Well, if you love Jesus, do you hate the things that you once loved that Jesus hates? And, and do, you, do you now love the things that, that Jesus loves which you once hated? Things such as holiness and obedience and, and, and purity? And most importantly, If you have truly repented in your life, do you continue to repent? Do you continue to reach out 
to God? Do you continue to confess your sins? Do you continue to seek Him? Do you continue to call out mightily to God, even if it's in in, in your own private prayer closet or your devotions? If this is true of you, then you can be sure that God has done a work of repentance in your life and that there has been a revival in you. And if not, then Jesus said, will likewise perish unless you repent. And that is the lesson from this passage, that we are no better off than the Ninevites. Though we might not have the external um, behaviors of evil and wickedness that they have, we had the same evil hearts. And if God had not done a work in our hearts, we would not have sought him. But as Paul writes, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And the fact that we continue to repent is a key evidence of our assurance of faith in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in bringing us to repentance and faith. Lord, please forgive us for making light of our sin, of toying around with sin. Help us, Lord, to hate sin, to turn from it, to flee from it, to run from it, to kill it. More importantly, help us to strive for and to long for and to hunger for righteousness, for holiness, to see the beauty of purity and holiness and righteous living that is most exemplified in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who lived a life that none of us could live and went to the cross to die the death that we all deserve to die, and by his wounds we are healed. Lord, we thank you for the cross, gospel. We thank you that we who were once far off have been brought near through the preaching of your gospel that you sent people to us. Even if we were born in a Christian home, there is still a sense that you sent people to preach the gospel to us. And because of that, we see your mercy. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, help us to preach this message of repentance and faith to a people who deserve your destruction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.